everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dear Black Girl. And today's guest is a journalist, a multimedia personality, and she's an author. She has a new book that's out now. It's called Bad Fat Black Girl, Notes of a Trap Feminist. And you can get that everywhere right now. And I would like to welcome today's guest, Cecily. How are you? Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yes, I am an authoress. I love when people, I love when people put the author on there, child. (laughs) Let's talk about that moment. Like, what made you decide, like, right now it's time for me to write this book and to, like, follow my dreams and become an author? So, I'm not even going to hold you. It did not happen like that. Um... I had started a new job at Nylon Magazine. I was overseeing uh, their entertainment vertical there. And my editor-in-chief, right around the time that I started, announced that she had gotten a book deal. Okay. So I was like, how do people do that? Like, you know, I had been working in media for three years. Like, you know, people write books. But I was like, wait, what is the process? Like, you know, it's, it's no job applications for, like, author. You know what I mean? I was like, how do people do that? So I literally just popped in my boss office one day, like, can you tell me how you got your book deal? And she was like, an agent approached me about it. Um, a, a lit agent, a literary agent. And she was like, she's lovely. I can introduce you to her if you want. And I was like, sure. Like, I would love to to meet her and talk to her. Honestly, that that moment, one of the strongest moments of that last year from a white woman I've ever experienced. Shout out to Gabrielle Corn. Um, she has continued to look out, uh, since, you know, over the course of the time that I've known her. But so I sat down with my literary agent, her name's Nikki and, you know, Nikki was like, I read some of your articles. You definitely have a strong voice. I would love to know, like, are there any topics, you know, like basically like, do you have a book idea? Like, I, have you thought about writing a book? Like, you know, what are your ideas? I would love to hear them. And so, I was like, okay, you know, let me think about it. And trap feminism just popped up because I had written about trap feminism and kind of like conceived of this concept like years before um, in like 2012. And like, I had written a little bit about it for this blog called Feminist Thing. And then I had also written a little bit about it in my master's thesis and you know, I really identify with the term trap feminist. I would like, you know, say it in conversation with friends. But then when I transitioned into women's media, I was kind of quiet about it. And I think one of the reasons I was is because of the way power structure works at those places and IP and things like that. Essentially, like when you introduce a franchise or something to a place like, you know, to, to a major publication, um, like Refinery29, where I worked, or Nylon, where I worked, you know, it belongs to them now. You know, when we started, you know, Unbothered at Refinery29, like we, that lives there now. You know, that's not ours. We don't get to take that with us. And I knew that trap feminism was mine and mine very specifically. And so th- there had never been another opportunity for me to write about that until that moment. And that was when I knew. I was like, okay, yeah, this is the concept. Agent loved it. And then we started to get the, the proposal together and and so on and so forth. And here we are. So give us a quick definition of trap feminism. Um, the quickest, most concise definition of trap feminism is that it's feminism for real bitches. Okay. Um, but I think, you know, the 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 more kind of um, 
descriptive definition is that it, it really is feminism for uh, the generation of Black women who really grew up on and in trap culture. So whether that was listening to actual trap music and really um, defining our gender and our sexuality and our our culture and our heritage, um, you know, it's, it's for girls who know what to do when they hear those first few chords and back that ass up, you know, when they start spreading to the dance floor. It's for those girls who, you know, know every word to knuck if you buck and rock your hips. Um, because I think growing up on, in that in that culture with that specific with that specific type of hip hop, um, we had to shape our version of like, you know, femininity, black womanhood, activism, feminism, all of that, all of those things with with a different kind of in within a different context. Um, and then, you know, on the other side of that, it's about, you know, it's feminism for black women who actually live that shit. So not just who is represented or who is making the music and what's who identifies with what's in the song. But like, no, like it's for, for women who like live and have survived and in the trap, like in hoods, you know, it's, it's really feminism that focuses on like the experiences of the most marginalized black women. So trans black women, poor black women, black women from the hood um, and things like that. I really love that. Yeah. Especially because with, I mean, quote unquote, regular fe- white women's feminism, it doesn't include mm-hmm. us all and like we're left out of it. And then like, there's just like this whole, I don't know, like people just like to downplay like the empowerment of black women and like black women wanting to be independent, but at the same time still like want to be loved and took care exactly. of all that Yeah. Stuff. And it's, and I will say, you know, you talked about like, when did I know the moment was right to write this book, you know, I, I told you the story of how the book came about, but I will say one of the reasons why I thought it was serendipitous with the timing was that, so this conversation where I was first approached about writing a book was in 2019. And you have to remember that's when we had, we had the surge of female rappers, mm-hmm. City Girls was going crazy, Megan Thee Stallion was going crazy. Um, you know, we were having all this, we were having Hot Girl Summer, we was having Rob Him Sis, we was having City Girl Summer. You know, we we were having this moment where there was this very specific performance of um, Black female empowerment that was happening. And I was like, oh, actually, there's a history. There's like a bit of, you know, there's more history and there's more context for that. And I actually had the perfect framework for us to start like examining that. And it, it, it ended up being trap feminism. So I, w- I do think that in terms of timing, I think that trap feminism is particularly important right now because like we're having all these conversations about like black women's empowerment and, and, and we see what's happening. The moment we start having those kinds of conversations, here come the well, what's wrong with wanting a husband? And now, now all of a sudden, you know, it's it, it, now they're trying to take us back to the 1960s, girl. Like, and it's like, why? Like the moment we we express even a little bit of autonomy over our sexuality, uh, over who we who we do it and don't want to date, you know, what we will and won't put up with in relationships, you know, how we link up with our homegirls, how we celebrate because we twerk in public, you know, like now all of a sudden it's you know, we got to get y'all back on the track of domesticity. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) But y'all haven't been saying that when Black women have been like the most educated group, you know, over and over again. Well, we are, you know, a huge majority in terms of new business owners and things like that. So, yeah. (laughs) 
You're Elo, why didn't you touch me? I went to my first ever pride parade or pride event with my mother actually. Um, my mother is bisexual um, and has been so since I was little. And so when her and my dad were not together anymore, she um, she had a girlfriend. And one day she was like, we're getting ready to go to a picnic. And I was like, well, well what kind of picnic? And she just like, she wouldn't say. Like, she was just like, we're going to a picnic. Like, she she would get real um, kind of spicy with me about it. So I'm like, okay, what is going on? But she expected me to be cute. She was getting cute. I just didn't know what was going on. And we, um, I'm from the South side of Chicago. And so we went to, um, Rainbow beach and for, so for folks who are from Chicago, if you listen to this right now, you already know what, what T is, but I was young at this time. I was like, you know, maybe, um, like, I couldn't have, I couldn't have been older than 16. So I had to have been somewhere between like 13 and 15. And, um, I, uh, we pulled up and it was like all these black people, um, rainbow flags everywhere, you know, but, but, but beyond that, just like, you know, it was a lot of studs, but beyond that, it was just like the makings of any, like black gathering, you know, people barbecuing, people dancing over their plates like this, you know, people smoking cigarettes or whatever. And I remembered, you know, that was my first moment where I recognized that not only were like, okay, like gay people also exist in the hood, right? But like there was queer, there was a such thing as queer community and there was a such thing as a black queer community. And that has been important to me in terms of my own identity as a queer black woman because um I think I needed to see queerness normalized like that from a very young age in order to really understand all of the different possibilities that could exist to me in terms of what I was allowed what kind of sexuality I was allowed to have because I think that for a lot of black folks especially black girls we are taught we are really like trained and socialized to be straight from a very, very young age. You know, the, we, everything we do, the way we walk, the way we speak, the way we dress. And that's, and that's from everyone, from our parents to our peers. Like, you know, we are supposed to be straight. We are supposed to be, um, we are supposed to be positioning ourselves in life uh, to accept the kind of, um, the right attention for men to attract the right kind of men. Um, and I think that for so many of us, um, sexuality that can, that can exist outside of like a male gaze and around and outside of like um, expectations from men are just, they don't exist. And I really appreciate my mom, not only for taking me, but I also appreciate her for not, this wasn't a moment where she sat me down and said, okay, I'd like to have a talk with you about something important. You know, it was like, no, like I'm hanging out with my boo. We going to the pride parade and you're going to come with us because you're my child. And if you have a problem with it, oh, well, you can eat it. Like that was pretty much it. Like you can just, you going to sit there and have to deal with that. And like, honestly, like that's how I feel about straight people now. Like whatever problem you got with what we got going on, like oh, you have to talk to God about it or something. I don't know what to tell you, you know? Um, and so I think, oh, by young and May, 
feels very attached to that because the energy around that song when it first came out, like, you know, the song is, is the song is a bop. It's just like one of those classic hip hop records. It, you know, but it's also a very queer record, you know, like she was talking about getting deep throated in that, in that, in that record. And, you know, a lot of people had questions and like, you know, um, questions and concerns about it, but there was also a whole other group of black folks who knew exactly what she's talking about and was like, yeah, this makes sense to us. Like we recognize this, we see this, that's family. And so, yeah, that's okay. So that's, um, song number five. <laughs> okay. So, so let's talk about that. Like, uh, you, you talked about like seeing how that, seeing that community help instill you the confidence you had to like be able to express your sexuality and like not give a fuck about what people say. Mm-hmm. Um, what else helped to attribute to that? Because that's, queer or straight that's hard for people to be able to be able to be sex feel sexually liberated no matter what so i think feeling sexually liberated i think that's a different conversation because i think those are two different things because i don't necessarily think like feeling in control of my sexuality was related to feeling like I had a lot of options of how I could express my sexuality. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So like, I actually felt very sexually liberated, very young. And, you know, that is because of like, very specific, unique circumstances. My mom was the um, receptionist for a gynecologist in Inglewood on the South side of Chicago from the time I was two up until I was like 17 or 18 when she became a nurse and started working in the hospital. And that's where she, because she couldn't afford childcare, that is where I spent my summers. That's why I spent a lot of my time like in this clinic, like watching these black women go in and out for a variety of different reasons, overhearing the conversations that they having with my mom, that they having with the doctor, that they, you know, they on the phones talking to their homegirls about, you know, what is happening. And so I definitely like had a lot of information in my at my uh fingertips. Information that a lot of um people do not have. And that's just across the board, black, white, whoever, you know, I was reading pamphlets about like breastfeeding. I I promise you, I could have taught a seminar on breastfeeding when I was like 18, you know, and like hadn't even had any kids, but you know, breastfeeding, STIs, CDs, you know, HIV, pregnancy. Like I just, I was overflowing with that kind of information. And I think that actually made me feel very empowered sexually because I knew that I was armed with all of this information in terms of you know, what very, you know, logistical and kind of material uh, resources I would need. Now, it would take some years down the line to figure out what kind of emotional and kind of moral and community support I needed. But I think I felt very like sexually liberated because I knew what to do. Um, Expressing myself sexually outside of like being like a straight person, I think that was a little bit of a different journey. So what was that journey like for you? I think that was just, that actually had a lot to do with like existing in the world as like a a fat person and being like, being a, being a fat girl meant that people, you know, people stereotype fat black women as either super hypersexual or completely asexual. And so 
because I had all this like sexual knowledge and was very well versed in like, you know, sex ed and like sexual health and things like that, I, I'd always felt like I was being looked at as some kind of other within the realm of like appropriate sexual activity because people did not expect for me to have any kind of grasp or, or range of sexuality because I was a fat black girl. Like people don't, you know, so when I would talk about like just the fact that I had even had sex or that I liked it or didn't like it or that I could have a preference, you know, I would get like this response, like, wait, what? Like, it was kind of like taboo and just kind of, it was just, I I was made to kind of feel like an other in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think what that did for me was that like, it always gave me a sense of feeling queer. And so then when it came to like, actually like having sexual experiences with people of my same gender or non-binary folks, it was just like, oh, like people expect for me to be doing some taboo shit anyway. So like, let's just, you know, let's just go for it. And so I think that's what that journey was like. And then I think, you know, what was hard was unlearning all of those scripts about what dating should look like, because a lot of of how we are taught is taught through this lens of like heterosexuality. And that 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 work didn't come until like years later into like college. The first fight that I ever got into, um, I had just moved into um, Parkway Gardens, which um, is a housing project in Chicago. Um, everyone else might know it as O Block um, for people who listen to, you know, drill music, trap music. Um, a lot of Chicago rappers kind of come, have come, you know, out of that area. Um, and I had just moved in there. Me and my mom had moved in with my aunt and her two kids into their two bedroom apartment. Um, because I had gotten into a really good school on the South side. Um, and my mom didn't want me to have to commute up to, to get to school. So, but she couldn't afford a place yet. So we just moved in with my aunt and, um, I had been there for like a month or so. And there was this, there was this girl who was kind of, you know, she was kind of like, the leader of the, of the girls in the, in the hood, you know, in the projects, you know, she was, she had a real smart mouth. She was a little dirty girl with a smart mouth, honestly, like a skeet ponytail clothes was always dingy, but she just had a lot of mouth and people, and people follow her around, which is so funny because like, you know how like popular girls are presented on TV and shit. Like they always dress to the nines. They always got, nah, shorty was dirty, but she was that bitch though, you know? Um, and I, you know, I always say I inherited a smart mouth, honest from my mother. And so, you know, I had, you know, I could keep, I could stand my own with her in terms of like this battling back and forth. But I definitely think because she did not know me, it was more of a challenge. And so one day, um, you know, we probably had exchanged some words either, you know, a day or two before. And one day she came up to me on the side of the building and she was like, do you want to fight me? And it was one of those questions where like, you know, if you from the hood, like, you know, that that's not really a question. Like it's an ultimatum. Cause what you going to say? No. Cause if you say no, then everybody like, Oh, you scary. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you ain't want to box. So it was one of those things where it was like, damn, like here we are. And, and I don't, I don't remember what I said. I just remember that in the next second we was fighting and he was like, tussling, was going at it. And so we, we fighting, fighting, fighting. And like, at first she went in, like, shorty is being my ass because like, I'm not taking it seriously how like she really came to throw down with my ass. 
Um, so, you know, then I kind of get the upper hand. I'm bang, bang, bang. Like we really rumbling going at it. And then when I finally start getting the upper hand and I can like hear the people that are watching the fight, like, oh shit. Like, um, and then her cousin jumped in. So now I'm fighting both of them. <laughs> so now I'm fighting both of them. And, you know, it gets to the moment where I slip and I follow them. Like, oh my God, fuck. Like they about to stomp me out. But like, I'm scrambling. I'm fighting because I'm like, anything but that. And it was like, right at that moment, somebody came and broke the fight up. And, you know, so I, you know, I go into the apartment and I'm like, you know, I'm kind of shook up about what happened. But I just, I remember feeling like proud and like, like I wasn't even really like embarrassed because like I knew that I had held my own and I knew that um I knew that it would be safer for me to live there now because like at the very least like she knew that I wasn't just like she wasn't just going to be able to hold me like if she if she wanted to ever have an upper hand with me like we would have to fight about it and so um and it's and of course we became friends like literally a month later like you know, because back in the day, it was like that. For young people listening, I know they be shooting and stuff now every time they got a problem with somebody. We yeah. did not used to do that. We used to fight, and it was like, okay, now we gonna fight, and now once we know, okay, I can beat your ass, or you can beat my ass, we can squash the beef, we can start over. Like that, you know, that is how we used to handle our beefs back in the day, you know, back in, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Not like that now, but back in those days it was. And so when I think about, um, when I just think about how Nuck If You Buck energizes Black people in that same way, how it's just like, in, in my book, I write about the song and I say it's like, it's like muscle memory, how we just do this when the song comes on, you know, um, and when people call it a Negro spiritual and things like that, I'm like, this is kind of true because of the energy um, that the song carries. And I don't think it's a coincidence that like the hardest verses, the verses that really stick with people from that song are from the two women, you know, yeah. because black women often have to like fight the hardest for the shit that we believe in or to just exist or to just be safe in our neighborhoods. So I love how you like uh, called to the anthem because like it, it really is like a gospel spiritual. Yes, drops, like everyone knows it. Everyone, like, gets super hype, but at the same time, there's like a love that's a part of it. Like you're just mm-hmm. like it's just like you get all that aggression out, but at the same time, there's just so much love that's around us on that. Yeah, that and what was it? Chicken head with the two goals that was so Oh yes. <laughs> yes. On the back of the bus every time everyone was yes. on the bus like just cause it it really is like a communion type of thing and like yeah. It really is. It really is. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so what? I have to just say, first of all, of that song, hearing that verse for the first time was the day, or maybe I won't say hearing it for the first time, but like once I learned the words to it and could recite them, that was the moment for me where I decided that I had a choice in life to either 
be the kind of woman that people wanted me to be or to be the kind of woman I wanted to be. And I made a very conscious decision to be the kind of woman that I wanted to be, period. And a story that I think about a lot, um, you know, everybody knows with Nan, it's like Trick is talking shit about, you know, how he's the man and he's trying to holler at Trina. And then Trina actually says, "Mm, actually, no, not interested. I'm actually that bitch. And, you know, let me tell you why. And there was a moment um, when I was in high school, I went on a um, a college tour with um, some folks in um, like some some other of my classmates. We went on an HBCU college tour. We went via bus. Uh, We traveled from Chicago down to the South. Essentially, we toured a lot of the schools in the South. And there was an upperclassman who was on the trip with us and he had just been being very, like, he was always cool when we were at school, but there was something about what the dynamics on this trip, he was just being an asshole to me, like the whole time and for, and for no reason, you know, it was just kind of like, every time I would like say something, he would try to like kind of embarrass me or just, you know, he would just kind of like he would try to create these, um, you know, a little social circle within the small group of us that it already was on the, on the trip that I wasn't a part of, but like, those were actually my closer friends. So like, it's impossible. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't exclude me from a group of my best friends. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, he was just being very petty. He was being very petty, very passive aggressive with me for the entire trip. And I couldn't understand what was going on with him. And it it came to, it like kind of boiled over one night when we were, you know, in, um, we had all convened in like somebody's room, you know, of course it's a bunch of, uh, high school kids in a, uh, hotel. Of course we have in late, you know, nightcaps and, you know, having little parties in one person's room. And, um, there was one point where like, we were all talking, we were probably having like a passionate debate, you know, talking loud about something. And he was like, Cecily, shut the fuck up. And I was like, no, you shut your bitch ass up. You know, I kind of like, we. I was ready to fight at that point. I'm like, oh, we got a box now. Because like, you've been disrespecting me the whole trip. But like now, now you've just gotten too disrespectful. Yeah, and so um, our chaperones, you know, my friends started kind of pulling me back. He talking shit, you know, like, like thinking I'm not going to do nothing to him. And one of the chaperones come in and, um, you know, they're trying to figure out what is going on because they they don't understand like what has happened just like in between me and him that where all this animosity has built up because you know again he's been taking little petty shots it hasn't been and there was another upperclassman um she was a senior like him so you know she was a couple years older than me and she she hadn't said anything the whole trip and she was like he thinks that Cecily likes him and he keeps trying to intimidate her oh wow and I was like damn like that is what's happening like it it was like it was like this moment of like explosion like where I was like no that's exactly what's happening because like he has been on this trip like flirting with other girls and I had peaked him you know like flirting with some of the other girls on the trip but like I, I didn't I wasn't interested in him like that so I wasn't like panning any mind but I was like oh in part of him like expressing 
his sexual desires also involves performing or expressing who he does who he is not desire who he does not find desirable and so like he has to make it clear to me that like I have not earned like his approval in a way where like I had never asked for his approval in the first place and so that was the moment for me I think where I learned that how people treat you can sometimes have absolutely nothing to do with who you are, but who they are. Um, And I think, you know, Trina's kind of response to Trick on that song really kind of puts me back in the spirit of that moment where it's like, actually, nah, fuck you, bro. Um, You ain't shit. Um, I don't have to even tell you how I'm the shit, but I will, you know, since you asked. Um, because I, you know, I just think about where he is now and like where I am now. And I think he's like one of those four X niggas now, you know what I mean? Like a nigga that's not doing shit. Also, I, I we are so late in the game, but I, I can curse on here, right? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I think that, <laughs> that is probably, um, my song for that. Town, how they turn the niggas into zombies, make them dance like thriller. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, before I became, went out on my own as a freelance writer, um, around the time that I got my book deal, I was um, an entertainment journalist um, for publications that are known for kind of centering white women, centering white voices and centering white perspectives. And so one of the things that would happen, like when I worked at Refinery29, when I worked at Nylon, I, less less at Nylon, because as I mentioned, Gabrielle was cool, um, but definitely more so at Refinery, you know, um, I would find myself having to fight to get coverage of women like Megan Thee Stallion or Cardi B because they were at the beginning of their of their fame and of their careers. But like, they love to break white women that no one heard of. Just yeah, like why was I? Why did I need to care so much about Bella Thorne in 2017? Like you know what I mean? Like versus like Cardi because like let like where is Bella Thorne now? Where is Cardi now? You know what I'm saying? Like. And so um, I had been, uh, I had saw um, Megan's freestyle um, on YouTube when it first blew up, that very first freestyle that kind of blew up on YouTube that got a lot of people into her. I had been listening to Tina Snow religiously, like legit religiously. It was, I'm pretty sure for the summer of 2018, it was the only thing that I listened to. Um, And it had been months of me literally like, hey, we need to cover this girl. We need to get this girl in here. We need to do this profile. We need to have her. And um, we finally set it up in November. It was like the day before she got signed to 300. We actually, this is the day I met her, the day we actually did the photo shoot. And so for me, you know, Tina Montana, I think it's just when when people, if, if someone was to ask me like a certified hottie, who, you know, what song of Megan Thee Stallion should I listen to, you know, that really kind of epitomizes her, her lyrical ability, her songs, I always point to that song. But I also think it is, um, it's just one of those songs where she's really, she really is popping her shit. And I think in that, in that same that's kind of how I felt after I booked her, you know what I mean? Like after I booked her for, 
for you know it was it was her first feature for like a women's a, a mainstream women's outlet you know like she had been like popping on social media she she only had she didn't even have 500,000 followers at the time when I interviewed her you know it was her first um profile for like a major women's outlet and so like I, she was feeling like that girl and so was I <laughs> <laughs> can you talk about that like trying to navigate being a black voice in like predominantly white spaces Mm, um, I had to do a lot of explaining and I had to do a lot of, um, very specific kind of advocating. I really had to, I really had to make that part of my brand essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and I needed people to recognize that it was that perspective and that voice that made me stand out in the first place, which is the reason they were attracted to me and wanted me to come on to write for them. Because I think that like, that is often what was missing for them. It was almost like they wanted me to talk how I talked about black stuff about white people. And I, I did not want to do that. I, and I, I mean, and granted, there were a lot of shows that I had to watch as an entertainment journalist that I never would have watched under any other circumstances because I knew that the audiences that we, that we catered to, you know, I knew that those were the shows that they watched. Like, bitch, I never wanted to watch Riverdale. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So, you know, I just... I had to be uncompromising about it, but I also had to be compromising about it. Sometimes being able to write the things that I wanted to write meant that I also had to write something that I did not want to write, you know, or something that I wasn't necessarily interested in at all. Um, And then the things that I really wanted to write were sometimes looked at as like, you know, extra over here, you know, um, cherry on top. So but, you know, in other ways, I think it helped, too, because I do think that, like, you know, I got to speak to people that I wasn't able to speak to. It was really a double-edged sword because, like, I had to fight to be able to cover, like, certain people and certain things. But some of those folks that I wanted to cover wanted nothing but to be covered by a place like Refinery, you know, like, because Refinery would, would you know, overlook them. And I think that's always kind of the... um the issue of kind of that's the problem with black culture being pop culture, which is what it is because people don't always want to acknowledge um, black, black culture as pop culture until it's already kind of stamped that by the whites. (laughs) So was your book deal what made you decide to like the step out from working within like the constructive nine to five workspace and go freelancing? So I actually got laid off. So what happened was, um, COVID and uh, no, it was before COVID it was in 2019. Okay. So it, 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 the process actually started in like June of 2019. I, in, in January at the top of, I left refinery at the end of 2018. And then I went to nylon and I started that job in January. And then in June or July of that year, Nylon was acquired by Bustle, which mm-hmm. was like another company that has a lot of different publications like uh, the Zoe Report, Actual Bustle, um, Elite Daily, Nylon. They have a bunch of like women's kind of interest outlets. And so they got acquired by Bustle. And that was in like June or July. And they kept saying like, okay, just keep doing what you're doing. We're, we're figuring out the transition. We are. And Perfect. then we, we knew something was up. Um, Gabrielle came with us in the transition, but didn't stay. So we knew that that was a red flag. You know, they were just like a lot of red flags. And then in September, 
like right at the end of September, they laid off the most of the staff that had come over. So so when they first acquired, when Bustle first acquired Nylon, they laid off some staff then mm-hmm. that they wouldn't need at the new place. And then in September, they laid off most of the small amount of us who had came over to uh, to to join Bustle from Nylon. So it just so happened that I had been working on the book proposal and I hadn't had a book deal yet, but I had, you know, booked a couple of speaking engagements that year. Um, I thought maybe I would be like a social media content, like create more content for social media, do more like brand partnerships, get brand deals and things like that. And so I trusted that I would actually be okay. Like if I just tried to go freelance, like I was like, okay, like, you know, I'm just going to try it. And, you know, I, and it wasn't like a big decision. Like, yes, I am now a freelance writer. It was more so I'm not going to start looking for jobs right away. Yeah. Like I'm going to do some stuff on my own, you know, and then see what happens. And then literally a couple months after that, I got a book deal. So like, um, I got laid off. I had a press trip planned uh, to Paris. They still let me go on the press trip as like an influencer instead of instead of a, a, a journalist. I went there. I was like, you know, what? I don't have a job to go back to. I'm just going to extend the trip. I was like, I went to London and went back to Paris. And I came back. I got my proposal finished for my book. I submitted my book proposal in like October, and then by in November, I got an offer and got um and it is sold. So. That was like that. It definitely helped, mm-hmm. but then like I just kept getting little opportunities that kind of just kept me afloat. So that that first year, um, you know, I was living off my book advance and other like other freelance writing one off opportunities that I would have, and you know, it worked out because it was like, oh, like now that I have a book deal, I actually have to write the book. <laughs> so I probably shouldn't get a full-time job and then the pandemic happened. So it was like, oh, Perfect. I have the time and the solitude to write this book right now. I think the one thing that did suffer were my, were my plans to be a content creator. I am not an influencer because, <laughs> because I think one of the things that I noticed was just, you know, my following grew very organically when I was working those jobs at like Nylon and Refinery because I'm a, I'm a fat black girl. I would go and I would be at all these events and with all these celebrities. And that's interesting to people like to see the lifestyle of somebody who goes to these different places and does these different things. But like, when you're freelance and it's a pandemic and there are no things to go to, <laughs> like all of that changes and, the, and, and creating content just for the sake of creating content, even still to this day has not come naturally to me. So, you know, that, that has not necessarily been my path, but you know, obviously I wrote my book uh, last year and then earlier this year, once my book was written, but hadn't come out yet, I was like, okay, you know, I still don't want to go back and get, a full-time job because now I just know how much money I can make out here. I think I just like, let me like kind of expand my skills a little bit. So I learned how to do copywriting this year. So like I had been like copywriting for different agencies. Like some of my clients were like Goldman Sachs. Um, I, I currently work part-time essentially doing like uh, marketing, social media writing for one of Netflix's verticals. So like I do stuff like that. Um, and yeah, still no reason for me to go back and get a job yet at this point. I mean, and I also, I like how I get to spend my time. I, I make a lot more money and I actually work a lot less, which is major key being freelance. So 
Work smarter, not harder. Yes. <laughs> Trina's my icon in case you can't tell. Um, and I think it's just really, you know, whenever I do think about like all of my accomplishments, when I think about um, everything that I've been able to do in my life, the things that I've kind of been able to overcome, you know, I, I come back to that record, you know, where like it's, it's the affirmative, you know, um, these are the pieces of my life that I have been able to put together to be the baddest bitch in my life, you know, um, for me. And so, um, it's just really like, it's really the, the converse is, it's really the conversation about worth. I think that is important to me in that track that, um, really brings a lot together for me. Um, and that's everything from having written a book to having had the career that I've had, to having become a writer after years of like knowing that I was good at writing, really identifying as a writer because that was something that was good, like felt good to me that I was, that was easy for me to do. My side hustle in college, I used to write papers for other people for money. Um, I, um, and then like to be here now where like I've written a book when I, you know, when just five years ago, I did not see a path. Like I had no clue how something like that was going to happen. Like, I'm that girl, you know, I'm the, I'm the maddest bitch. And a lot of y'all have probably noticed that all of my songs are, or a lot of my songs are from female rappers. I'm obsessed with female rappers. That is obviously another huge part of trap feminism. This, this, this history of women in hip hop and what kind of blueprint they were kind of setting forth, even if unintentionally for how black women could live. Um, I actually talk a lot about that on my own podcast. It's called Purse First. Um, it's, it's literally just a show where me and my co-host talk about queer and female rappers and we interview them and talk to them and it's dope. Um, season two coming soon. <laughs> no, cause that reminds me of uh, the verses with uh, Trina and like when I was, cause like you really don't remember like what they're talking about, but during that verses, I was like, yo, Trina gave birth to this entire generation right now. <laughs> Sometimes when like, like when Jasmine Sullivan is doing her stories where people are like sharing a embarrassing relationship stories, mm-hmm. I'm like, you bitches did not read the syllabus. There was and there was a syllabus laid out for us by these girls. Where were y'all? Where were, it's like y'all, y'all must've turned the Trina off and then y'all was putting on the jagged edge and, and y'all was just forgetting everything that Trina, because... Listen to the dirty macking guys. <laughs> the syllabus was clear. She said, don't grow to be a dumb hoe, save up by a combo. Not go co-sign for that man to have a car. She didn't say to do that. And so <laughs> but look, private if they is, didn't do the readings, they didn't do the readings, okay? But I was gonna say, like, private is like when you hear a song for the first time, especially when you're younger, you're just like, oh, this sounds cool. <laughs> It's not until you go through that shit, you're just like, damn, damn, it's clicking now. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you want your legacy to be? Um, I want my legacy to be one of um, self-determination and resilience. You know, I really want um, to leave behind a legacy that makes people feel like they have a little bit more room to just be exactly who they are, to be exactly, to be the, to reach for the aspirational version of themselves. Um, and to, and to understand that like, 
life is hard and ugly and not fair. And like, you still just got to get your ass up and keep going. You still just got to get up, brush your teeth, wash your ass and keep going. You know, like those are the only things we got to do, you know, it's just, it's just keep going. And there's always like literally another opportunity to like pivot. And that is as some, you know, writing was not my first career when I first shit, I barely finished college. Like I, it took me six years to get an undergrad degree. You know, then I I moved to DC, thought that I was going to have a career in politics, did that for two years, hated it, went to grad school, didn't know if I was going to be a professor, be an academic, what I was going to do, ended up being a writer. Here I am. And, you know, and who knows what I'll be in another five years. Like it's never, um, it's never too late. Like you, you do what you want to do. You know, there, there, there are a lot of things that, you know, I feel like black women, we do what we have to do when we can't do what we want to do. And so in any opportunity that you have it to do what you want to do, do that. Dear black girl, you are still young, even if you're in your 40s, whether you're in your 30s or whether you're in your 20s. You have so much life ahead of you. And it literally starts today with how you spend the rest of today and you get to make the most of it. You get to pour into it. You get to dictate what it looks like and you get to to walk in it passionately, knowing that you did so making those decisions. Um, There are things that are going to happen in life that are going to help light the way for you, that are going to help you figure out what you do and what you don't want and take heed to those notices. Love Cecily. P.S. Fuck that nigga. <laughs> and that's all, period. <laughs>